Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. This week's focus is on an overlooked aspect of our criminal justice system. It is relatively common practice for prosecutors to inform high-profile targets of investigations that they have closed a case. We recently saw this with former Vice President Mike Pence, who was notified he wouldn't be charged for retaining classified documents. But such courtesy is seldom extended to lesser-known individuals, leaving many in a prolonged state of uncertainty. Having seen this practice as a federal prosecutor, and now as a lawyer representing targets, I've come to believe it's an institutional norm that prosecutors' offices need to change, and I regret defaulting to it as U.S. attorney. I've been thinking about this issue enough that I recently published an op-ed in the New York Times about it. In it, I wrote, quote, Unless notification risks harm to an ongoing investigation or would disclose a covert inquiry or alert a co-conspirator, basic fairness counsels the targets of all investigations, not just those especially in the public eye, should be told when there is a decision not to bring charges for lack of evidence or for any other reason, end quote. What's the reason for this unfairness? As I put it in the op-ed, quote, failing to tell people that charges won't be filed most often results from some vague prosecutorial prerogative and thoughtless institutional habit, end quote. It's a habit that should be broken. To further explore this topic, I've invited my friend Barry Burke. He's a prominent defense attorney in New York and served, as you may recall, as special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee during its first investigation and impeachment of former President Donald Trump. Barry, my friend, welcome to the show. Thank you, Preet. It's a real honor and pleasure to be here. So this issue, which I think a lot of people don't focus on, particularly lay people, is one that you and I have talked about and I've talked about with various clients. But to put it in context, let's just sort of explain how this works. Ordinarily, people think someone gets arrested, indicted by a district attorney's office or a U.S. attorney's office, they say, I need a good lawyer. They call up Barry Burke and you represent them. You either help them to negotiate a plea or you go to trial. But lots and lots of your matters relate to people who have not been indicted or charged, right? They're targets of an investigation. Explain to folks how those clients come to you. How, how is it that they know that they're a target and what's your job? No, that's exactly right. People often come to me because they have been contacted by lawyers at their companies. Sometimes maybe an FBI agent shows up to question them or an agent, or it may be that they otherwise learn that there may be an investigation involving events that they're involved in. So they come to me to advise them and also to hopefully speak to any prosecutors who may be involved to make sure they don't get charged with anything. And what's that process like as a general matter? Because this might be surprising to people also. Is there usually or often a dialogue? There is often a dialogue, particularly in white-collar crime cases, where it takes a while for an investigation to build, as you know as well as anyone, Preet, given all the great cases you brought. And from the defense perspective, we try to learn as much of the facts. We try to 
just read the tea leaves, see if we can see clues as to whether there really is an investigation. And often it's pretty easy to find that out because there are efforts to gather information from companies or other individuals. And in which case, we can be proactive to reach out to the government agency, the office, the U.S. Attorney's Office on the federal level or the DA's office at times, and to say, we represent this individual or the company, and we'd like to have a dialogue as we understand you're investigating. So let's say on those occasions where you have a dialogue, you make a presentation, and you say, based on the law and the facts and also the interests of justice, you should exercise your discretion and you should not indict my client. Then you go home, and the next day they call you and tell you their decision, right? <laughs> in the world that we would like to live in, that's the way it should be. But unfortunately, so much of this process, as you know, is counterintuitive. And we have experienced, you've experienced it on both sides, that we make a very strong pitch. Sometimes it's a formal presentation. Sometimes it can last months, the dialogue. And we feel good that we have persuaded them there is no crime, there's no case to bring, or not a case that they could win at trial. And oftentimes, the best you get is simply silence. They don't come back to you. You look to read tea leaves again to see if there's any indication of activity. But what you don't get in almost every instance, except in very high-profile cases, as you've raised, you don't get that closure that clients often want and many times they actually need. And that's just wrong. And I'm so glad that you're elevating this issue because it is so important. So sometimes it's the case that there's radio silence because the prosecutors and the agents and the cops, depending on the case, are doing an investigation. They're issuing subpoenas, they're getting leads. Maybe it's a large criminal organization or there are other co-conspirators. So this is not to say that it's inappropriate or wrong for, in particular, a complicated white-collar investigation to take a year or two years or longer. That's appropriate, right? That's exactly right. That's not what we're talking about, and that happens all the time. We're talking about situations, and I'm talking about it, where you have made a full presentation, there's no indication of an ongoing investigation, Oftentimes, you and the client believe you've persuaded them that there's no case to be brought, and there's no indication they're doing anything more other than sitting on it. And it's in those situations where you really do want them to step up and say, we're done. And I can give you some examples where that hasn't happened and the rare instances when it does. Yeah, give us some examples. So as you know, Preet, you led the investigation for a while of the then mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, and your office was very open about what you were looking at. You invited us in to make presentations, and we made a lot of presentations as to whether what the facts were and what the law was and whether or not there's a case to be brought. And we also raised the issue that because he was the sitting mayor soon to face re-election, you guys, if you decided not to go forward, should tell us and tell us before the election campaign began. And you did that. You ultimately looked at the facts, determined there was not a case you were going to bring, and you told us. That is the exception. That virtually never happens for regular people. And let me give you a contrast, which I also have with a current client who I can't name, that involves it's a significant company and senior executives. The same office, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, was doing an investigation. So was the Department of Justice years ago. They identified the senior executives as targets of the investigation. That became public that they were identified, as was the company. And we had presentations for years. It has now been nearly three years since they were identified as targets. There has been no activity for well over a year. We know the case is done. We know they're not bringing any action, but they have not. And we've asked. They will not tell us that they have made a decision to end the investigation. And it's, and it's harming the individuals, both reputationally, 
personally because it's still technically hanging over their head. And it's very much hurting the company because banks and others don't want to deal with them in certain capacities because there's still this investigation that has not been closed. Yeah. And there's another point I'm making the op-ed and I've experienced in practice now that I'm on the other side. So the client says, well, what the hell's going on, Barry? Call them up, yell at them and tell them to put up or shut up. And often it's the case for reasonable cause. You say, I don't want to do that. Um, And the way I put it in the op-ed is you don't want to poke the bear. You sort of suggest, well, no news is good news. Maybe they'll forget about you. Maybe they have forgotten about you. Maybe the prosecutors in charge of the case are busy on other matters. Maybe they left the office. Just let sleeping dogs lie. Is that is that the approach that often you take? That is often the case because, again, given what the stakes are, when you reach out, they might say, oh, I'm glad you did. We have questions. <laughs> we want to speak to your client. We have questions for you. Let's go. And you're reminding of something because we all know that sometimes there are other cases that simply take precedent. So that is often sort of the, the sort of the bind you're in, that you want to get that closure, but in the event that you call them and it stimulates something, that cost is too high. But I'll tell you, in the example that I'm giving with the company and the senior executives, they wanted to go for it. I went to the highest level in the Department of Justice, and we still could not get satisfaction. They said, it's not our policy to do that. We can't do that. We won't do that. And I think they were concerned about adverse publicity, but our client still, years later, still has this hanging over them, even though they know we know it's closed. Other people don't know that. And also for individuals at whatever station, it really does have an emotional toll to know that technically you have been identified as a target or part of an investigation and you've not been officially told it's over. So the case that you're mentioning is one that's still unresolved. You've been doing this long. How long have you been doing this work? Been doing it for three, three decades, over 30 years. 30 years. Now, in some of those cases where you have a client who's a target under investigation never gets indicted, like take a client you might have had 10, 15, 20 years ago. When is the point at which that person gets some closure? Is it when you advise them, hey, guess what today is? It's the end of the statute of limitations or some other way? That's exactly how it happens. And I've had it. I I mark it five years in some instances, six years in others. For clients who are overseas, where there's an opportunity to extend the statute of limitations, as you know, to eight years, I have an email from a client in Mexico. Congratulations. Uh, (laughs) It's over. And that's a client who avoided traveling to the United States despite having gone to college here and having family here and the like, just because he did not know for sure what might happen. Very prominent person in that country. And it has a real-life impact because the stakes are so high and you don't know for sure. Now, there's certainly times before the statute has run where I can say with confidence, having done this for so long, that I feel with 95% confidence you're done, but it's not 100%. And it's just me, their lawyer, not the government. And many instances, it's not quite that clear, although we believe it is so. And I believe you elevating this issue can help change the policy. So the department will say, we really do have an obligation to tell people when we're done. And by contrast, which, you know, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, which only has regulatory power, they will routinely give a notice when they're done, when the matter's closed. If there's been notice that they're considering action and they decide not to do it, if you press them as a company or individual, they'll often tell you they're done. And if it can be done when the stakes are only about money and other sort of injunctive relief, certainly that should be the minimum required when it's actually someone's liberty at stake. You said there are occasions when, given your experience and track record, 
that you know with 95% certainty the case is not going to go forward. How does that happen if they haven't told you that? Usually, you know, you're talking to a lot of other lawyers. You're talking if it's a company involved, you're talking to the company, you're seeing if there's been any indication of activity. And it's really just there is not. You also learn that what they're hearing is made clear in your mind that they don't have a crime, certainly not one involving your client. So you have that confidence. But that is the exception rather than the rule. I've certainly now been doing this long enough to know that there are cases where I personally believe there is no crime. My client didn't do anything wrong. But a U.S. attorney's office or the Department of Justice in Washington disagrees and they bring the case. So I would say in most instances, the best I can say is I'm pretty sure you're done. I don't think they're going forward, but I can't say with certainty because they haven't told us and they won't tell us. And that's not so reassuring for individuals in particular who you know are trying to live their life and they don't know if one day they could be arrested and face, you know, spending many years in jail. When you think about how we all plan our lives with our children, thinking about school and college and the like, I represent clients who aren't sure whether they're going to be fighting a criminal case, whether they could maybe going jail during the prominent years. If they have business decisions, it's a real impact on people's lives as well as businesses that have to contend with it. And there's given that in the situation you're describing where there is no good reason, there's no investigative risk or ongoing investigation, it really is just a question of changing the policy because I don't think there's really a strong or good argument why it's not done to give people notice. You know, we mentioned the statute of limitations. Two points about that. One, sometimes it's not so clear when the statute of limitations or when the government will argue the statute of limitations began to run because it's ongoing conduct. Sometimes it is clear. So there's that uncertainty also. And the other point is, you know, certainly it's the case that from time to time, a prosecutor's office will bring an indictment or a charge right at the end of the statute of limitations period, right? They're hurrying up. They want to get in from under that uh, termination point. But most of the time, most of the time, cases are not brought on the last day of the statute of limitations. And so by definition, right, I guess I'm stating the obvious, by definition, on the day that you send that letter or that note to a client saying, congratulations, the statute of limitations is up today, by definition, the government had to have made the decision not to charge some point before that. That's exactly right, Preet. And you also raise a good issue that there's often different ways to interpret when a alleged crime or potential crime has ended. So I have to err on the furthest out date to make sure that when I give a client the assurance that they're out of trouble, they really have to be but it's not necessarily so obvious that it's going to be the earliest date. Um, but the fact that we're even talking about this, and, and again, you're really bringing attention to something that we as practicing lawyers know about, our clients in the situation feel so deeply, but it doesn't get a lot of attention outside of that. And again, as we, there's a lot of talk about how to make the criminal justice system more fair, more just. This should be low-hanging fruit, right? Because we're talking about making it fair, and more just for those who are not alleged to have done anything wrong, for those not charged, just people who were in the crosshairs of the criminal justice system and now should be out of the crosshairs. So I don't think there's a persuasive argument to be made on this side as to why notice isn't given, other than that's not the practice, there's no real policy, and it takes some extra work to do, and it may be there could be some adverse publicity in certain types of cases that the investigation wasn't you know, pursued. But other than that, there really is no good argument. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this.
Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. What's interesting to me, I'm not making any excuses. I regret that I was a part of maintaining that status quo, as was every other U.S. attorney's office and many other prosecutor's offices. I'm not aware of any prosecutor's office, and people can write in and tell me otherwise, because some people have made this comment, and I don't quite credit it. I'm not aware of any prosecutor's office that as a routine matter, at the moment that they've decided they're not going to pursue a charge against someone who's known to be a target, unlike the SEC, that they send a letter to the target or the lawyer of the target telling them that. But I will say that when I was U.S. attorney, uh, you and others, I would meet a lot of defense lawyers, was very you know interactive with the defense bar. Um, there were scheduled meetings of defense bar groups who would come in and they had a lot of complaints. There were a lot of things that people said, you know, we could do a better job of, um, including early on in my tenure, a practice of the courthouse in the Southern District, not allowing defense lawyers to bring their cell phones into the courthouse or into the U.S. Attorney's Office, I heard a lot more about that than I heard about this issue. Why, why is it that the issue, defense lawyers are not shy. And what I find odd about this issue is, it's not like I, I found gold or I'm reinventing the wheel. Everything that I've written in this op-ed is known and obvious to the defense bar, if not to, to the prosecutors. How come you didn't complain more about this? I'm not blaming the victim. I'm not blaming- No, no, but, no. But I, you, I really you're... wonder, uh, and I'm asking you as a friend, why didn't people- come to my office and go to other prosecutor's offices and say, this is a ridiculous, unfair practice, end it. 
Yeah. No, you raised the right issue. And listen, I give you credit. You did have that open door and your colleagues and it's happened. And there are regular meetings with the defense bar where a lot of issues are raised about the sort of things that happen routinely. For some reason, I have some thoughts about it, but this is an issue that does come up periodically, but typically on a very, very specific case by case basis. Yeah. And that, you know, I have fought hard with the most senior people in Washington, with folks at different U.S. attorney's offices. You have to tell us. And I've had people at the line assistants, the junior people say, yeah, Barry, I'm not saying you're wrong, but I, I don't have authority to tell you more. So you need to speak to other people. And I find that encouraging, but still to the client, they're like, yeah, that's good and well, but what about more senior people? And I think the reason why it did not get sort of more defense bar attention is because we tend to focus on the things that have real and direct consequences on a, a macro level, right? What happens at a regular trial that are, you know, trials are going on all the time, plea agreements, how we go visit clients or in the courthouse and how we can communicate. This is something that comes up periodically, but when it does come up, it is so significant. So you, you raise a good issue. And sometimes we also, I think, get a little bit lulled. How do you change something that seems so entrenched? This is like, this is the policy of DOJ. Okay, it's the policy. But I think by when you raise it, it's a little bit like the emperor has no clothes. It's like everyone, nobody can say like, gee, you're right. There are no clothes. <laughs> gee, you're right. There is no good argument. So I do think the defense bar should have been more attentive to this, including myself. And it's good and well to bring it up on an individual case, but to go beyond that would have been helpful. Yeah, you know, I, I have been thinking about this and noodling on it for a few months now because I've had some client experiences. And I keep thinking I must be missing something as I reevaluated how our office did things and how other offices do things. And it's, you know, it's pretty universal practice. And no one I raised it to, including people who are currently, you know, high level prosecutors in the country, gives me a counter argument. I mean, I suppose there's, there's one thing that's in the minds of prosecutors and was in our mind when we made those statements as we did in the de Blasio case that you were involved with and also the Andrew Cuomo case um, and high profile cases of that stripe. And it's, you know, sometimes it's the case that, there's not enough evidence to bring a charge, but the prosecutors really believe that the target um, should have been prosecutable and they weren't able to get enough evidence. And I suppose in some of their minds, they're worried or concerned that something saying we're not gonna bring a charge will be used by the target or the target's defense lawyer as proof of innocence or exoneration. And it's that sort of muddy line between yeah, we just didn't have enough to get over the top of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but there's a lot of bad stuff here. You weren't exonerated. We're not saying you're innocent. Do you think there's any merit or weight in that distinction? You know, it's interesting. There may be some instances where that's true, but I sort of think that suggests too much of a formal process. Like I always feel as a defense lawyer, one of the most powerful factors that often help my clients is pure inertia. Right. <laughs> if the evidence isn't easily coming, the witnesses aren't necessarily pointing their finger in a way that helps make a case, it's easier to pay attention to other files, other investigations that seem more promising, that seem maybe easier to make or stronger cases. So sometimes it's really just that the file and the case is sitting there and it's not getting a lot of attention. So people aren't thinking about it. And then the second sort of human factor is hope springs eternal. So there's the file. Yes, it's still there. I haven't decided. We haven't moved. We don't know what we're going to do. And who knows? Maybe there'll be some yes. evidence. Maybe there'll be a break. <laughs> maybe something will happen. A witness will fall from the sky. A exactly. You know, because we, because again, I don't, you know, everybody sort of, you know, has their blinders on to some way on both the prosecution defense. Everyone's drinking their own Kool-Aid a little bit and thinking that there really is a case to be made if I just had the witness or the evidence. 
But what is so interesting in the high profile cases you and I both know about and we're involved in with the former mayor and other situations, when there is a requirement to, right? In the political cases, it's because you don't want to impact campaigns or unfairly involve yourself in the political process if there's no case, even where there may be a view, okay, maybe there could be a case if it's a requirement. Everybody works well with deadlines. (laughs) If there's a requirement, the office will do it because they know, you know, they know the offices, the prosecutors know when there's not a case to be made. So I agree. It's often not a considered judgment to not give that finality, but just a hope or a lack of attention. I think if the rule changed and the policy changed that we're going to try to do this because it's the right and fair thing to do. And that's how the Justice Department and other prosecutorial offices should run itself. I think people would be more proactive in trying to reach that point and say, I don't have a case. And you could have the caveat, maybe there'll something else will happen, but right yes. now you're not a target and the investigation is being closed. You can always issue the caveat. You know, it's, it was interesting. We keep talking about changing the policy. To be clear, I'm not aware that there is any policy at all. The justice manual, previously known as a U.S. attorney's manual within the Justice Department, I believe is silent on the issue of garden variety cases in which you do or do not advise the target that the case is over, right? So some guidance of any sort, I think would be appreciated. Do you have a do you have a recommendation about what that guidance should look like? Yeah, let me just say, I completely agree. There is no written policy. It's the worst kind of policy. It's the one that is understood <laughs> and a little bit uh, like urban legend. And in the case that I've been talking about, the company, the senior executives, I went and spoke to some of the most senior people in many different units in the Department of Justice. And I kept hearing again and again, Barry, We would tell you, but you know, the policy of the offices, we do not make those statements. We do not make it in a way that can be used publicly. We do not make it. That is the policy. And I would say I heard it over a half dozen times from different people in different offices at different levels. So there is a belief that is the policy, even if there isn't one that's written, which is the hardest policy to argue against. Yes. So what I would like to see, and I'm glad you asked, and I'm glad you've raised it. I'm really just joining you on the bandwagon that you started is a policy that simply says when the U.S. Attorney's Office or an investigative unit has determined that they are not going to go forward on the case, as a general matter, they should inform the subject or targets of those investigations that the investigation as to that individual or company is closed. Pretty simple. That's it. It doesn't need to have a lot of subsections, right? Nope, it does not. (laughs) And it can have, and there's obviously a subjective piece, but we all know that when folks, and I do believe people in the offices will engage in good faith when they, in good faith, say, are you done? Like, yeah, we're done. We're not bringing that case. And it'd be great if they told the people who knew they were being looked at that, yeah, we're not bringing that case. Yeah, look, I don't think we should be clear because I deeply respect all the prosecutors that I worked with and I thought we led a good office and there was no, you know, malice here. As I say in, in the op-ed, I think it's a result of, quote, thoughtless institutional habit, end quote. And once you think about it, and I am I, reasonably op- optimistic that I think reasonable people in the Department of Justice and elsewhere, once they start thinking about it and people start talking about it more, um, which hopefully this will prompt, there will be a reasonable policy. And, you know, you may not love the policy and all of its features, but th- there's, there's really no reason why we don't have it and it should have been addressed some time ago. Um, we're running out of time, but since I have you, Barry, anything else you want to get off your chest? Well, let me just say one thing, Preet. I want to give you all the credit in the world. It's easy to do because it's your podcast, but I mean it. Because the hardest thing to do is for someone in your position to say, I look back at what I did in a position which I got a lot of attention and acclaim, and I wish I had done something differently. 
But I have to tell you, that is what will change policy. When someone with your background, your experience, and your reputation comes in and say, we should have changed it then, but we can change it now. So I applaud you for doing that. And the hope is, I'm sure that I'll represent plenty of clients who don't get the benefit of such a policy, but at least there's a policy and you can try to do it. Generally, I'm glad you got that off your chest. (laughs) I got that off my chest. (laughs) I bet you are. And then I would just say more generally, I think there's been a lot of attention on the issues of great importance, mass incarceration and the like that, you know, deserve so much attention in our justice system. The only thing I would say is sometimes in white collar cases, and I've done both, as you know, as a federal public defender and now as a lawyer in private practice who involved mostly in white collar cases, Oftentimes, the white-collar cases don't get the same sort of attention because the individuals are less sympathetic. They may have money. They have positions in companies. But I will tell you, the human toll on people at whatever level of having an investigation over them is real. And so I and I also think that when there are changes that affect the white collar area, it often flows down and, and is something that can help everyone in the criminal justice system. Because just as the white collar defendant I'm talking about would benefit from this, there are also situations, not as common, but there's situations of the postal employee, somebody who works at a federal gov- agency, a government, a working class folk person who might be fallen into something where they're being investigated. That person as well has a right and will often want, whether they're represented by a public defender or a private lawyer to know that they're no longer under investigation. So I think the issues you're raising really would benefit the criminal justice system from the top to the bottom. Barry Burke, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Preet. My pleasure. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content including the weekly podcast I host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned in Brief is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatashore. The senior producer is Matthew Billy. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. The editorial producers are David Curlander, Noah Azulay, and Jay Kaplan. The production coordinator is Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.